recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors and presented by the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and the International Dark Sky Association. Added to the IES's 2021 Progress Report, this is Starving for Darkness, a podcast. Hang on a second here, folks. That's right, hang on a second. Michael Colligan, co-host of Starving for Darkness here. Just to tell you real quick before we get into the conversation, which is super important for you to hear, that you need to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, especially if you're a contractor or a distributor, Greg Eric. That's right. And they're coming out with a new exterior line of product, or they have come out with it, and they're going to continue to add to it, and they're dedicated to making dark sky friendly lighting. Uh, and potentially dark sky compliant as we go. For now, though, they do have a dark sky full cutoff wall pack, a variety of wattages, Kelvin temperatures, and a precision crafted optical lens that's ideal for increased fixture spacing and uniformity. So less lighting fixtures needed because it, it can provide more light out of the one fixture. So check that out. Go to keystonetech.com. That's right. Hold on. Here comes Starving for Darkness. But before. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and today we're having an intimate one-on-one conversation with myself and our guest, Ashley Wilson. The biggest barrier to solving light pollution is awareness. So I want to encourage all of you to check out the state of light pollution in your own backyards by going to www.lightpollutionmap.info. You may be surprised by what you find as light pollution has crept up around all of us slowly and perniciously. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. We have all the lighting technology to get our stars back right now. The problem is in our thinking and implementation. So creating awareness about light pollution is the critical next step in the darkness movement. Our next guest has devoted her career to getting this message out and raising awareness. Ashley Wilson is the Director of Conservation of the International Dark Sky Association, where she collaborates with advocates and volunteers around the world to help them promote effective uses of outdoor lighting and protect pristine dark skies. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And we start every episode with the same request. Please tell us about a dark sky experience that left you with a feeling of awe. I would say that would have been in my freshman year of undergrad. I went to the University of Arizona and I wanted to be part of their astronomy club and their grad students are running a bunch of different projects. And so they decided to take out the club members to the Mount Lemmon Sky Observatory outside of Tucson. So we drove up one night up this windy road and you could like get further and further away from the light pollution from the town. And we get over this hill, so now you're at this high elevation. It's like 11 p.m. at night, and you get out of the car, and you look up, and I was just immediately transported into a world outside of myself. I have never seen so many stars in my life 
in this perfectly blue sky. It it was just this incredible mo moment. I had to just immediately plop to the ground just to take it all in. I've never seen something so magnificent and feel something bigger than myself, not only on our planet, but then within our galaxy in this universe. And everything was just above me. And it's just such awe and, and quiet. And it was just like that moment that I will always carry with me. That's amazing. I love how you use the word transported, because it really does take you outside of yourself to somewhere un unnameable. Um, and that I feel like that is first for the, our days right now where we're constantly on this chase for the next dopamine fix. <laughs> <laughs> on our phones or emails or whatever, to have something completely take you out of that and transport you somewhere where you're just completely satiated, almost in fascination. It's just such a, a need, I think, for us to feel a more sustainable way of being uh, taken somewhere and transported, as you said. So you are the Director of Conservation at the International Dark Sky Association. We'll call that the IDA for the rest of the show. Um, tell us about the work that you do uh, and, and what your, your role entails. I have a couple different roles. My primary role is to help guide the Dark Sky Places program and to continue to have that program evolve and reach new heights every single day. Right now we have 183 certified places in 21 wow. countries around the world. Yeah, it's incredible. And to think that we had 100 places in 2019. So in three years, we, we basically almost doubled that. So I yeah. think that really speaks to the power of this movement and how it's gaining mainstream attention globally. This, this is huge scale and then um, making sure that this program is accessible to everyone. Um, we want to, you know, increase efforts to, you know, have places and countries and regions that still haven't had that recognition. They have pristine dark skies. They're talking about it. They're celebrating their heritage. So let's have that conversation with them and bring them into our program. And we are currently going through a new guidelines update. So going through our philosophy, even discussing what even is a dark sky? Like, how do you quantify that? Or even um, qualitatively, like, what is the expectation and the experience that we want people to have when they go to these dark sky places? And then what are actions we can take to make sure that we are actively protecting these places? You know, it's, it's, it's both. It's celebrating the night sky, but then also doing action to make sure that we're not losing it um, that our future generations still have that same experience that you and I have had and and not losing the night. So, so how does other... uh, how does one quantify a dark sky? So if there's going to be people listening that are in their communities thinking, hmm, maybe we're close, maybe we could start uh, thinking about being a designated dark sky place. So what is the quantification for that? And um, what kind of expectations do you have? That's a great question. Uh, first, I'll preface with saying that of the five different designation types, we kind of have two categories. There is a conservation-based mm -hmm. and a built-in environment-based. So the conservation-based is, is for places that you would expect to have you know, naturally dark skies and very few sources of artificial light. And so right now, our current 
quantification is over with the zenith night sky brightness, which is measured in magnitudes per square arc second. So if you mm -hmm. have a sky quality meter, the Unihendron um, device, that is measuring the amount of light pollution at the zenith or the, like the top of the sphere of the globe. Um, so our metric is uh, for like a dark sky park, for example, we would like to see um, either at or darker skies than 21.2 uh, magnitudes per square arc second. Um, if you are a sanctuary, sanctuaries are for areas that are in remote locations and the expectations is they do typically have darker skies. So those skies mm -hmm. will have 21.5, right? And so like, even though that sounds like a really small scale, it's a logarithmic scale. So you're having orders of, of difference in the amount of stars and darkness, even just between like a 0.3, like a decimal difference. Mm -hmm. And same thing with reserves. Reserves are kind of like a weird hybrid uh, between the conservation and built-in environment. So their cores are the areas that have the darkest skies and then the they have a buffer zone around the core to protect the, the middle. So it's a collaboration between the managed area, which is the core, and then all of like the communities and, and counties and other areas around this core. So it's a collaborative effort. But the core also has the same requirement as a park. Communities and our newest designation, urban night sky places, don't have a requirement for uh, night sky brightness um, because it's it's where we work and live. But we want to give recognition for communities that are still doing their part to make a difference. So they they are still adopting lighting ordinances or policies or bylaws or how it works for them. They're still doing outreach. Uh, they're still retrofitting lights to be dark sky friendly. So they're still making that commitment. And, you know, places that are, are lucky enough to still live under dark skies, you know, that that's really important to them. They want to protect that. But I would really like to see a, a shift in like larger communities, you know, like maybe just because they're not dark doesn't mean that they can still participate in the dark sky movement. Um, and then the last one, urban night skies, places are kind of like the in-between right now. They can be a place adjacent to a larger community. So it's, it's an accessible point for people to come. You can still do a night sky party. You can still see planets and, and other cosmic entities and still have that conversation. But it's somewhere, you know, within a 30-minute car drive, you can just take your family and have a nice place to go and experience the night. I think that's really smart the way that you're doing it because it allows everyone to sort of get in on the advocacy for darker places. So you're right that there's going to be a limited amount of people that could actually be or places that could be a dark sky sanctuary. But by creating a more broad set of definitions for people to strive for, I think you allow that awareness to become um, more ubiquitous. So I love that. I think that's a really important aspect of your program. So I see you do a lot of science education in your work, and you have two science degrees, one in ecology and evolutionary biology, and also a master's in biological sciences concentrating in sensory ecology. Can you talk, talk about your process of science education and what makes it easy? What are you sort of up against um, in, in your work? What makes it 
Easy. Well, okay. So, so taking it back, right? You, you do all this education. So you learn how to read the literature. You learn how to understand statistics and what the models are saying and how to interpret the data. But not everybody has that training. So how do you yeah. take the, the meaty parts of a technical paper, take away the jargon, and then translating it and explaining it in a new way that's digestible and people can meaningfully take away the main points of a paper and then hopefully use that information either to adopt their policies or adopt their way of thinking or you know you know how are we adapting our understanding of natural scientific principles and then tweaking things to make things better right because at the end of the day that's what science is how to improve society and how to um, improve how we go about doing things so a part of it is understanding your audience, right? So not everybody is going to have the same perception or, you know, even the same interest um, from, from someone from my background. So how do you take elements from your your audience and get them on board? Like, what's that hook? And then right. and then giving them that information that you would like them to, to glean off of. So uh, what I was in my master's program, I actually uh, went to a communicating science conference or ComSciCon, and it was oh, kind of like a little wow. mini boot camp. Yeah, um, there's a national who one that? and they have, who leads that? I don't know, I think, I think okay. it's just a program. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's abbreviated ComSciCon. I don't know, I feel like I should. No, that's amazing. I, you know, I, when I asked this question, I didn't even know that you had even endeavored upon um, a program that was about communicating science, because I think that's a major block. And, you know, even when you talk about um, the metric for SkyGlow, I mean, that's a, a multi-word metric that probably throws people off. I think you said um, arc meter squared, or I, I, don't, I don't know the metric myself, but I think when people see terms like that, you know, sometimes they can gloss right over and they, they don't want to know anymore. So there's a lot right. of work that has to be done in science education. And SkyGlow is one area where it's been very heady for people to kind of, there's not even agreement within our field on how to measure sky glow at this point. So how do we educate about it? So so you went to this program and what did you learn? Um, they, yeah, they had a couple different workshops. One of them was how to write a press release. So how do you get that point across in 500 words or less? How do you have the like most interesting part of your entire like statement at the very beginning. So it's kind of like an inverted pyramid of how you would write yeah. a scientific paper. You would have your introduction and then you would have your hypothesis and then your expectations. So you would have to have like the main results at the very top. And then how does it relate to you know a human or society perspective? And then break it down, um, have some quotes in there from the researcher or whoever you're talking about, because that gives more of it um, empathetic or, you know, relatable message than just the data. You know, these are people who are who's doing the research and they're passionate about it. You know, give them that chance to show, you know, their interest and in why they spent three plus years looking at something. Right. And yeah, just just make it engaging. Use some allegories to explain maybe some of these more difficult concepts. Um, yeah, just make it as relatable and short and succinct as possible. 
Yeah, those are great tips, I think, um, inverting the pyramid and getting most out most of the information in the beginning so that in case you do lose your audience and in the age of waning attention spans, um, that's very possible. So um, you do a lot of advocacy and have done a lot of advocacy for town halls. So what what do you I feel like that's the arena where we see the the common misconception that more light is safer. So when you are educating and trying to advocate for dark skies in that space, which is more of a municipal space, um, what, what do you find in the conversation there? I feel like having a respectable approach and, and showing that you are a member of that community, and it's not just you saying, this is really important, we need to do this for X, Y, and Z, it's this is how it benefits you. And let's have that conversation and noting that you recognize where people are coming from and you want to build that relationship together. Um, for example, when I was doing my internship with Voyagers National Park, I really wanted to have these town hall events to get their gateway communities on board and, and support that effort. You know, there was some, um, I guess hesitancy about whether or not these these communities would would not appreciate what the park was doing, or maybe feel like it was somehow regulating what they were doing with their lights when it very much was not. So having them invite them to your place and just having that conversation and just just stating the facts and and then surprisingly i had overwhelming positive response i had people coming up to me afterwards saying oh like there's all these lights and i want to change it and you know i own this restaurant or you know, um this bed and breakfast and i want people to learn about it and wants to like advertise it at my place like how can i be involved and that's that's what i love right like like all it is at the end of the day is education and raising awareness and once people are even aware of the issue they want to do something about it right and and honestly with like all the things that we are challenged in the world today and it can be very overwhelming i kind of feel like light pollution is special in the fact that there is a tangible and clear solution and every single person can participate and make a difference you know i tell everyone that every light matters and it's not like we have to rely on corporations to change their ways and and you know, recognize that they are the ones that are contributing to the problem. But if everyone stepped up and turned lights off that they weren't using, or if you know, using all these different principles to use lights effectively, we can have that balance and make the world a better place in that regard. I love that. Everyone can take part in the solution. And yes, there is a tangible solution and, and every light matters. I think those are really great ways to communicate to people. And so um, you mentioned Voyagers National Park. So you took part in a program there um, for the National Park Service's Future Park Leaders of Emerging Change. I just want to ask, did you feel that you, are, you met lots of people with kind of a new climate-focused point of view? I'd love to hear about the next generation of people coming up through the industry that really want to make that change and, and almost live that change. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, the, the program was really interesting because every year the, the program picks you know 10 to 12 different parks 
and each park gets to apply with a specific science-related topic that they need an intern to address. So this could be with like water quality, uh, with like freshwater habitats. There was someone that was looking at um, a hundred year change of rainfall in the Sonoro um, or um, Sonoran Desert. Um, so it was interesting because I feel like my topic is a little different. Like light pollution does contribute to climate change, especially how even in the U.S., you know, about a third of our lighting is wasted. So, you know, that contributes to carbon dioxide. But that narrative is not as clear and straightforward as other types of pollutants or, you know, like, um, like fire ecology. That's a really hot topic right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, there, well, there's these say? bigger... I said sorry for the pun because I said hi and it's about fire. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So th there's there's these urgent issues. I say urgent in quotes because light pollution is also urgent, but it doesn't get the same attention. Um, totally. I didn't do the same you know scientific process. I didn't do field work. Mine was much more how do I engage communities and how do I talk about the science and get them involved and how do we are using this evidence to adopt our policy? In that case, the lights at the national park to have a better impact on the nocturnal environment. So it was a different approach, but uh, at the end of the program, we got to all come together in Fort Collins where the um, program's headquarters is located and got to learn about how like, everybody's projects came to fruition. And it was, it was really amazing to see all of these inspired and hardworking young professionals know what they want they are making a difference. They're collaborating with staff. They're collaborating with these other communities. Um, there are a couple of examples of community science and getting people out and doing the science with them, which you know has that other level of connection and and kind of breaking the barrier of like what who a scientist can be and and mm -hmm. what's involved in breaking the stereotype is just you know like a lab coat and and anyone can do it. Yeah, you know. So it's. It's, it's really positive to see that people are pushing barriers every single day and they are testing what we can or can't do. Yeah, I love to hear about that work that's being done across multiple climate issues, um, especially, you know, obviously the light pollution one is near and dear to my heart. Um, and so I and I hear what you're saying that the narrative to explain light pollution, it's there's a bit of a barrier to get past what people think it is and what it actually is. And so, yeah, you could talk about the extra carbon from extra lights being on. And that's an interesting fact that you say a, thir a third of the light in the U.S. is wasted. That's amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, there's um, a book by Mark Jewell, and he wrote a book that basically says, if you want to bore an American, then talk about how um, you can save energy with new lighting. Um, that it's it's just not a fascinating angle into the topic and that it's just not going to get anyone's attention. And um, I often, and I know you've worked with sea turtles and I want to jump into that, but one of the things that I often educate about is that that's one of the only animals that people even talk about when it comes to light pollution. And, you know, they're adorable and they die on beaches, so it's easy to care. And so I often juxtapose that to the dung beetle because obviously it's a less attractive organism. So 
what are your kind of um, allegories that you tell that tell a better story for people to understand? And maybe they could even be useful sound bites for um, our listeners here to easily repeat to explain what the issue of light pollution really is. That's a great question. I feel like most of my allegories, they're on the spot. <laughs> so I'm prepared. I think the the one that I do, I'm, and I'm workshopping it, is treating light as a resource that you don't want to waste. Because um, light is so cheap, we just leave our lights on. We don't take a second to think about it. But you wouldn't treat water that way. You wouldn't leave right. your pipes on. You wouldn't just, you know, or... um. It also was like the technical aspect, right? If you needed new plumbing, you would hire a professional to do it correctly. We don't treat lighting the same way. We, we think we can just slap lights everywhere and be done with it. Um, but it's very much, you know, you should have a lighting designer for these larger projects and having conversations or like with the lighting distributor, if you have a bigger project and you want to have different types of lighting if you're redoing your home or your business or if it's street lighting in your community uh, there are standards and and expectations of how lighting should be done you know it really shouldn't be oh i just want to pick this one off the shelf and be done with it you wouldn't yeah you wouldn't treat water that way i really wish we saw light similarly yeah, that's a really great way to put it. And I love the comparison to water because I think there is more reverence for water when we come and treat it as a resource. And actually, I um, was reading LDNA magazine, which is the magazine for the Illuminating Engineering Society. There's an amazing article that came out um, in this issue by Edward Bartholomew and Mark Loeffler um, about light justice. And it made me really start to think, you know, not only could the lighting industry be more diverse, but that on top of that, we also treat uh, different communities differently and unfairly. And that, you know, a lot of, so my background's in interior design, which is um, not required licensure. You could be licensed in it, but it's not required like it is with architecture. And one of the main reasons, which I've never agreed with, is that it doesn't deal with life safety issues. And that's actually just wholly not true. Um, I have a lot of reasons why I, I think that's not, that never made it, its way through full uh, needing of licensure, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but it made me realize that maybe lighting design should be a licensed profession because it absolutely does deal with safety and that maybe we require projects over a certain square footage to have a licensed lighting designer on the project because we have so much shared experience and uh, through the sense of light. And so I, that's why I really want to get into, and I'm not quite ready for that, but um, I want to jump into turtles next, but for your um, sensory ecology, I, I want to jump there later. But um, let's talk about your work in Florida with sea turtles, since this is the animal that people kind of know about, but you're the expert. So I'd love to fill in some of the gaps for our listeners. Um, how did you start your work there and what did you end up doing and what did you learn? Yeah, that's a really exciting period of my life. I started working there in February of 2020 and uh, working for Sea Turtle Conservancy, which is based in Gainesville, Florida, which is not where you'd expect that to be because it's very much central and nowhere near a beach. 
but it's central enough to where the beaches are across the state so they can have a, a wider distribution of working with people. And their lighting team has a really interesting uh, disposition where they receive funding from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And they work with local beachfront property owners across the state and help them retrofit their lights to be sea turtle friendly. And the, the process of doing it is really interesting and unique. So they go out, so you get a free consultation of the property. So they go and they mark all the locations. They do it in uh, GIS's program uh, field maps, like how the National Park Service does it with their lighting inventories. Then you also get a free consultation of lighting design. So they basically pick out all the new lights for your property, make sure they are sea turtle friendly certified, but then they also make sure that you have light where you need it. You know, there's there's all of these mm -hmm. properties that were built like in the 60s and you just have light wherever. You don't even have light uniformity on staircases or egress lighting is all over the place. They don't have uniform lighting in parking lots. So uh, these lighting specialists figure all that for you. And then uh, they, put you in contact with the lighting distributor. So the property owner just has to say, here's a spreadsheet of what I'd like to buy, please order it and send it to me. And their only responsibility is paying for installation. They get all these fixtures 100% paid for with the Sea Turtle Conservancy. And then they meet their local lighting ordinance. They have these stays art LED fixtures that will last, we don't really know how long, because LEDs are new technology. <laughs> Right, and then and it just mm. has a really nice ambient look to it. It's consistent. Um, the Amberlight just has like that nice clean resort feel. It's very clean and polished. And then you're coexisting with these federally endangered species that come on their beaches, basically your backyard every single year. So you get to have that relationship with them. You're protecting the species. You're doing your part as well, um, but you're doing lighting right. That's amazing. I, I love hearing that. Um, now, it's interesting because I've heard multiple things coming out of Florida. Um, and yes, there's a lot of care about the turtles. But then I recently heard, and uh, I may have the exact statistic wrong, but that there was like a five foot candle minimum for parking lots. Now, it may not be exactly that, but it was much higher than my lighting design friends wanted. Did you ever come up against some of the other kind of competing ideologies of about lighting in Florida when you were working there? That's interesting because the Florida building code asks for a minimum of one foot candle illumination for parking lots. Um, so okay. I don't know who's using that standard. That's what we would strive for. Unless um, it's mm -hmm. a pool deck surface, then the pool deck and the water surface needs to be at least three foot candles. But five is still I greater than what I was working with. Yeah, it might have been a five average, but I know that my lighting designer friend was complaining to me that it was recently increased and she was shocked. And so it, it sounded like um, sort of one hand wasn't talking to the other when it came to uh, lighting regulation, which is so common. Um, and it's so easy to care about the sea turtles, but then, you know, when it's a land, a building owner worrying about a trip and fall, then there seems to be more leniency with light. I think it's interesting to see these competitive um, ideologies happening. 
And so you also um, completed the LSI Lighting Specialist Certification through the National Association of Innovative Lighting Dist Distributors, which is actually who funds our podcast. So tell us about that program and what you learned and, and what it enabled you to do. It was, I think it was intended to be a six-week program, but this was uh, during the peak of the pandemic last year when we weren't able to do site visits. So I finished it quicker because I wasn't doing my job otherwise. <laughs> so I, I went through it, you know, speed run. Um, but it was really important to get that training because not only does it teach you the history of lighting, it teaches you the different types of lighting. So how does an incandescent bulb differ from fluorescent to high intensity discharge to now LEDs? Like what are the components of each? Um, how they should be installed, how people can even perceive light. So how do our visual systems even interact with that stimulus? And then um, even training to how to order lights from a catalog to reading a specification sheet from a manufacturer, right? So that's really technical information that layman may not know, um, but that's True. really important information when you're choosing the products correctly. So when you're talking about illuminating a surface or, you know, what are the standards that we're striving for, it's it's good to know, you know, how much light you need for these different places. So how much light I need in front of entryway or like a porch uh, may be different from um, pathway lighting to and from the beach. And it's definitely different from parking lot when there are pedestrians and, and vehicular traffic. So all of that comes together to make sure that you're having the best informed decision, um, how to have conversations with manufacturers and distributors to make sure that you are helping your client or uh, whoever you're representing to make sure that they're happy with their products. You know, and, and you mentioned safety. So a lot of it has to do with um, illuminating the right levels. And like you said, there's a lot of um, difference in opinions and what that is. There's no uniform standard, uh, you know, whatever scale you look at. So it's, yeah, it's all about perspective as well. And even with looking at sea turtle friendly lighting, it's, it's narrow band amber. So if you compare that to a white LED, even if you're using the same intensity, the white LED will always appear brighter. So how do you balance that as well with our perception and expectations? Like here are the numbers, like they both emit, you know, let's say 800 lumens. Do you have to have more lumens for the amber light to meet the same expectations? I think it's perceived as the white light. So yeah, it's a, it's a balance, but having all that information can definitely make sure that I have the best plan for the, the person I was working with. Yeah, that's that's very interesting about uh, amber light being perceived as perhaps less bright um, because it's so narrow band. It's not really tripping up all of our photoreceptors, um, whereas a, a broader band light can actually access more of our photoreceptors in our eyes. Um, and so that it is interesting to hear that that's um, perhaps a, a different way of approaching amber light that maybe we don't hold it to the same standard because it's just another way well we'd have to ratchet the light levels back up if we're trying to directly compare and what's interesting actually if and i'm thinking out loud here but you know we have moonlight and starlight at night and those are our natural night celestial bodies of light um but i wouldn't exactly call them broad spectrum <laughs> it's a much more limited amount of light 
that you're getting in the spectrum. So I don't know that full spectrum light at night really is a solution or even how we evolved. So it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Now jumping into your, so I went on your Twitter and for listeners who want to follow Ashley, your handle is alpha underscore wombat. And um, so you describe yourself as a sensory ecologist. And you can tell me how you got your handle too, if you want. Um, can you talk more about what that means and how you see the world? And I'll also frame it in that I feel like light and sound are, uh, we've created sensory pollution with these two things. For some reason, people get it with sound that you can't play a boom box at 2 a.m., but they don't get it with light. So I want to understand how you see the world in that frame. I want to talk about all of those things that I got really excited. Okay, um, <laughs> let's let's talk about sensory ecology first. So yeah, um, basically, we we want to understand how organisms detect and interpret information and cues from their environment. We have different senses. We have visual. We have olfactory or smells. We have acoustic or you know like hearing. So we have all these different senses. You know, what kind of uh, cues in the natural environment are organisms innately able to pick up? What are they looking for for survival, for uh, detecting each other, alarm calls, mating calls? How do you find food and forage? Break all of these things to get to where they are today. And obviously, the organisms are going to have different specializations. So like a phoenix fox has those really big ears. They're going to be really acute, acute to hearing. Same thing with owls. Um, they have those asynchronous ears on their heads so they can like hear like this huge mm. wide profile around them. So they're apex predators for a reason um, compared <laughs> to, you know, how like nocturnal animals, they have um, larger sclerotic rings in their eyes. So basically um, the amount of light that can enter their pupil is going to be larger so they can detect lower amounts of light compared to diurnal organisms. So. It's looking at all of these different traits and their relationship with their habitats and how they have evolved to uh, adapt appropriately. But then you throw in anthropogenic stressors into the mix and everything's different. And so how are these organisms and systems adopting to, um, you know, if you call them sensory pollutants into the environment? And I think it's interesting that we, we can talk about the word pollutant and we break that down into two different components. because First, it's a contaminant that's entering the environment and it can cause adverse change. And so if we break mm. that down even further, you know, contaminant, you know, what what is essentially we are producing? So for noise, you know, it's it's the different frequencies of sound and we can detect it with decibels. Um, like you're saying, like we have expectations of what is is healthy we you know you don't want to have your neighbor blaring music at two o'clock in the morning because you can detect it if you have long exposure to noise that can cause chronic pain or even deafness right and like even in Gainesville where I live there's noise ordinances there are expectations of the amount of noise in residential to commercial districts in the city right so we can talk about it we detect it. If you do a Google search for noise pollution, you'll hear have people like covering their ears. Um, you get just like cacophonious images of like city life and, and you know, all this activity. It's very clear to define it and identify it and, and talk about what can we do to control it. 
light pollution is so much more difficult because we haven't yeah. identified how it's a pollutant. And if, if you think about it, right, it's the amount of, of photons or electromagnetic energy that we're producing, but specifically the excessive or unwanted use. But people, we don't, we are become so numb to the amount of light that we are emitting that we just become numb to it. We have all these wall packs and floodlights and just like emitting light, you know, straight into our eyes all hours of the night, even when no one is up and we're just used to it. So how do you even like have that conversation to get people to see what is good versus, you know, ineffective uses of lighting and, and talk about the next step is, okay, what are safe levels of lighting, either for safety or for driving, um, making sure that both pedestrians and drivers can see safely, like you don't even have definitions of that. And then, you know, like with LEDs, they're so dang efficient now that you can just keep producing light um, for hardly any energy and, and no one thinks twice about it. Some people are still using wattage as the, the I guess, a way to compare light intensity, but they're not incandescent anymore. Like wattage is not comparable to the amount of lumens or light intensity. So, so if we're producing um, all, you know, all this excessive light and putting it into the environment, you know, how is that affecting us? How is that affecting, you know, wildlife and, and plants, just the native environment around communities? And then light and noise are now seeping into even protected areas. The amount of growth um, and spread of light, especially with transportation networks like highways, they're now taking the noise and light away from city centers and are now going into protected areas like our parks and sanctuaries and, and whatnot. So again, it's, it's not just a controlled uh, system anymore. How do you stop the spread from areas that really do need dark and quiet areas? Yeah, it's it's so true. Um, we are not just confined to our cities, and and as you say, every light matters. Well, a single fixture can pollute up to 120 miles away. So, um, I love your description of the anatomy of different animals and how that relates to their sensing of our environments, and um, I really hear your compassion for their experience. Um, as you kind of are trying to kind of get into their almost anatomy to see how they feel um, through what we are doing, which is um, not been the natural way of living on the planet for all this time. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it in that way. And I always love talking about people's art in the world and how this influences a person's work and oppositely how the art influences um, back up to their work. So you are a self-proclaimed lover of bees and succulents. Can you talk about how your relationship to these two species has um, been you know, potentially more of a love that came into your work um, and just how that, that has, has sort of given you a different lens That's an interesting question. I didn't think you looked that closely at my bio. Um, oh, I do. <laughs> okay, good to know. I don't, like, like when people ask, like, what's your favorite animal? It's so hard to pick just one, right? So like as an ecologist, yeah. I have a holistic view. I like to look at the bigger picture as a whole and everything 
has its place, right? And and there's so many different types of habitats and scaling up to ecosystem. Like it's just like this really awesome machine with all these different parts into play. And over millions of years, like you have all these species with their specific niches, like they found their role and like you have all these different levels of life and it's just incredible. How do you pick just one? Um, why do I like bees? Because um, they're I awesome. Love bees I too, know. by like, the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. I just like yeah. I just get really excited when I see them because they're just like especially like the like no never mind I like I like them all but like I don't know they're they're pollinating they're busy they like we we talk about like intelligence for for different species and like bees have what's called like a mushroom brain um so like their way of thinking is different from ours but they communicate they have society they have structure. Um, they have like a whole intricate world and they plan things together and it's just incredible. And I think people take them for granted. And like Tucson has like 400 species of bees. It's incredible. Wow. Ha um, yeah. Right. There's so much diversity, especially in a desert of all places. Um, so they're resilient and, and they just take off and they have like all of their specific adaptations. And then, um, I mean, we have flowers and crops because of pollinators. So we definitely rely on these cute little buzzy bees. And, you know, like I want to live in the world with them. Um, same what thing with succulents. Brain? They're, um, like it's, it's wired differently. So like, I don't know how to explain it. I'm not a neurologist, but like our brain is more compact, right? And and there are waves in it. Mm -hmm. And like, that's how neurons can travel and communicate. But their brain, like, like it's like wired. And it like, comes out and it kind of looks like a curve. Please don't share this because I'm not explaining it correctly. No, that's okay. <laughs> the fact, yeah. The fact that you have that term, I think that's just so interesting because I just totally believe that we overinflate human intelligence and really water down the intelligence of other species and that each species, and I hear this in the way that you talk, has a different set of assets to experience and sense the world in. So I would not heard that term mushroom brain. So you're teaching me um, and you don't have to be a neurologist. So that's okay. Or so um, or, or a neuroscientist. So I think that's totally fine. But what you're describing is that not only are they in these very different bodies, but these bodies are also almost a totally different program. It's a totally different wiring. So that's that's fascinating to hear, and um, I loved hearing your perspective on bees, and and yeah, that there's 400 species in your part of the world alone. I mean, that gives me hope because I know that bees are in decline. So and that they're just such a major part of our pollination on the planet. So it gives me hope to know that there's so many different adaptations um, for for that type of species. So okay, now tell me about succulents. I want to hear about your perspective on succulents. Uh, I like them because they're resilient and going back to the desert where you don't think there's a lot of life at first glance, but there really is. And they can withstand some really extreme uh, climate change and, and, and different like fluxes throughout the year. Like we have the monsoon and then it's dry and it's really hot. Like you don't know when you're getting your next meal, essentially, if you're a plant. So you have to, and you also have to like be careful on how much, um, carbon dioxide you came in because like if you open your pores for too long like they have a different 
system of breathing in a sense than like your your regular plants. So they have like completely adopted to the system, but they're also really pretty and they come in colors and I just, I like the shapes and it just kind of gives me hope that, you know, even though life on the outside is difficult, you can still be beautiful and you can still thrive. Um, interestingly, when I was doing field work for my, uh, my, my second chapter in my thesis, there was a species, it's called, um, Dudleyi ambrosis subspecies marina, and it's only found within the perimeter of San Luis Obispo, like nowhere else in the world, but they were all over my study site. So I actually have a tattoo of it uh, because that's Aww. how enamored I was seeing it when I was doing field work. Wow. So there was a species that's only in that one part of the world. That's where it yeah. emerged and took root. And that's amazing. I was actually just talking to someone about crows yesterday and how crows, I've seen them in India, I've seen them in uh, Eastern Europe. And so that's a species that really was able to thrive in multiple different settings. But I think that we have to pay homage to these species that have their one location and how beautiful it is that they had that song and dance to emerge there um, with their environment and their own adaptation. So that's that's really interesting to hear. And so you are a Tucson native. You grew up in Tucson. Um, and tell us about how that impacted your career and your sort of understanding of the environment and, and your view through a lens of being a sensory ecologist. You know, I, I think our, our goals and ambitions change over time. So what I wanted, even like in high school, is different from now, but the like the, the main goals are the same. Like if you had asked high school version of me, would I be a director of conservation for IDA? I probably would have laughed at you, but here we are. Um, so like, yeah, you might, right? Like that's how life works. I've always wanted to be a scientist, but there's so many different components of science. I just didn't know what I wanted to. I loved learning. I loved having that curiosity. Uh, my senior year in high school, I actually started an astronomy club and we would have talks every week about I don't know, latest findings in that field. I worked with um, the local astronomy club to come and give us the star party. Um, like, like, it was interesting because, like, I would always look for seeing Orion every year, which is the you know, winter constellation. But even then, I could tell it was more difficult to, to see him every year because um, mm. it was the light pollution at the time. Um, that wasn't, like, a strong focus for me. But, it's, you know, it's something that I observed even then without the training. I mentioned that I started to do the astronomy club in my freshman year in undergrad. But I think I was torn between ecology and astronomy. And then I realized, you know, we only have one planet. You know, it's, it's kind of in peril right now. There's argument to say that we're in the sixth mass extinction of the world, um, mm. Anthropocene. So I wanted to be a part. How do I slow that? How do I be part of the solution? So then that's why I decided to choose that track. And I knew I wanted to get a master's degree. I um, ended up finding this post for the sensory ecology position. I didn't even know that was a field 
or that's something people could study. But I really liked, yeah, right. It was it was just a new term for me. But I really liked, you know, the the big scale of it. I liked how it seemed novel. There was so much promise for it. Um, I really liked the advisor and the work that he was doing. And then I just kind of ended up falling in love with it. I really enjoy talking to people about lighting and giving them an opportunity to empower themselves and do something to help protect the environment, um, to celebrate the night sky. Um, and, and being enamored, it's like we have this heritage and this deep rooted connection with the universe that we've had for thousands of years. Like there are so many ways to, to get involved and care and like want to help fight for the protection of our night skies. And that passion and that drive has led me to where I am now. And I want to keep helping people and making that connection and making sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure we don't lose this natural, cultural, and precious resource. It's really funny to me when we think about the creative process that eventually you didn't even have to choose between sensory ecology and astronomy, that your work kind of felt, you know, put you right in the middle of that. And I, what I have often said to, to, um, you know, some of my younger um, friends and cousins is that you really never know how these parts of your life really add up and that you may find that something that felt like a real outlier at the time ends up being a really big point of inspiration uh, in the work that you choose. So I love hearing that eventually it all really merged for you in your work. And so, you know, in your work, how has the public's relationship to light and light pollution changed? Have you noticed any turning points? Um, what, what have you seen um, on the horizon and what are you feeling now? I feel optimistic. Um, I'm seeing, you know, social media posts about all these dark sky places. When I tell people about my job, it's like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I saw it on Instagram or Twitter, you know, so it's starting to gain recognition. Um, I, I see all these, you know, grassroots events of, of people in smaller communities or even dark sky groups, like seeing the issue and, and wanting to build a foundation from the ground up. But then there's also this top-down influence, and we're seeing even whole countries like Mexico and France, and I heard Croatia is building national laws to talk about light pollution and what are ways to do it effectively. So I think if we continue to have this conversation, you know, and like like even um, a couple states have declared dark sky months. So Utah, Chicago, Michigan has it as well. So it's kind of like in the middle ground, and and so we just keep working together to meet to the middle ground and, and do something about it so it doesn't sound as egregious or difficult or outlandish, like, oh, we'd never do it, but we can. It's something that's important. As I mentioned earlier, it's an urgent issue. We can't keep waiting and delaying it because it will disappear. So how do we, you know, talk about kind of curbing the exponential growth of, of light, you know, and, mm -hmm. and using it wherever just because, and then keeping it to a consistent level. Um, so we're still having that balance of using light for society and safety and, and using it as a resource. And then looking at areas where it's, it's being wasted and maybe even talking about how can you take that back and restore natural darkness. Um, IDA actually used to have a, a slogan of stars up, lights down. And I think that's poignant and straight to the point. Like 
it's dark skies, not dark ground. You want lights on the ground targeted and useful, and it's a balance, right? So you can have nature, you can have the nocturnal environment, you can be respectful, but you can also use light effectively and keep that for yourselves and, and, and create this new environment that we can be safe, we can be healthy and, and enjoy what we have. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so important for people to recognize that anyone working in this movement is not saying that we're expecting pitch darkness, um, you know, at, at nighttime and that there's no human activity, that the whole of what we're saying is that it's a false dichotomy, that you can have the stars and you can light for human activity if you do it well. And that it really is an expertise that we need to bring professionals in to do uh, to do well and properly. So what do you hope? What's your five-year plan? Hmm. And how can our listeners just it's... track your work? Oh, boy. How can they find you? <laughs> <That's Yeah. another> <laughs> <question>. <laughs> um, I'd like to take a, a more landscape scale approach. So as I mentioned at the beginning, we have these reserves and it's a collaboration between managed areas and you know, the periphery and the communities and, you know, local governments. So how can we have more of that and, and scale up? Um, I mean, right now we only have one dark sky reserve in the United States. Um, and I think that seems, it might be too difficult to achieve because there's not as many, but if anything, it's it's more applaudable um, and, and should have be high recognized for the amount of collaborative collaboration that went into that. Um, we're seeing some dark sky cooperatives come out right now, and I'd like to see that in other regions pop up. How can we have kind of like these, these regional communities work together and connect that with our global community? We're all in this together. How can we actually protect um, sky sheds, right? And so like, like I said earlier, you know, light isn't condensed to just cities. It doesn't listen to boundaries. You know, it, especially with sky glow, it is spreading. So how can you identify entire areas of, of dark skies and then kind of work around that to get everybody involved to protect this larger area rather than just do um, slices here and there? How can you collaborate efforts together? And then, you know, how can we get these larger communities involved as well? Getting more people, especially those who live under light polluted skies, how can we connect them and bring them into this movement as well? So definitely working with the other programs with IDA, like our Advocate Network, um, we have our Fixture Seal of Approval program continue to grow and have accessible fixtures that people can buy their local retailers and make that decision for themselves. And, you know, like there's all these moving pieces. So how can we strengthen that and continue to grow? So how to measure that? Um, I mean, like not only will we have more certified places, but, you know, like, what, what are the scale? What's involved? Who are the partners? Um, is there a way we can actually identify changes in light pollution at this larger scale? So all these things that we have in our, our guidelines and our places program, talking about outreach, doing um, a lighting policy, a lighting management plan, which are fitting lights to be dark sky friendly. You know, is there a way to, to measure that and say definitively it is making a difference? So. Hopefully in the next five years, maybe we'll have something and maybe we can start to 
actually track these changes. And once we have that data and it's concrete, then maybe that could be used for further evidence to get people on board that it does work and it is worth your time. Yeah, I think it's so important to measure our impact, um, especially from the pointing starting place of darkness, um, because that allows you to then incentivize it and encourage it. So I think that's an absolutely great goal. Um, and I just want to thank you so much for your work, for your view of the world, um, for taking care of our wildlife and speaking for them and advocating for them. Um, I really, really appreciate what you're doing. And um, it makes me very hopeful to see that the work that you're doing. So is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners before we sign off? Just keep looking to the stars. Keep feeling hopeful yeah. and bring as many people you can. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation. Yeah, thanks, Jane. Thanks for having me. Hey, don't go anywhere yet because we have some instructions for you. It's Michael and Greg from Get a Grip on Lighting. Yeah, we do the ads for Starving for Darkness. You got to go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Light made easy, Greg. You've been rattled that off real well. Uh, there's a new line of exterior fixtures from Keystone that they have available, and they're going to continue to expand on it, and they're doing things right. And one of those that they're doing right is in their wall packs, they're making them full cutoff. That's going to eliminate undesirable sky glow and glare, and that's what we all want. It looks nice. It fits a profile of a lot of your old nasty fixtures and has multiple wattages and kelvins that can cover you there. Get rid of those old nasties. Go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Thanks for listening to Starving for Darkness. Bye for now.